Welcome to One Million Experiments, a podcast showcasing and exploring how we create safety in a world without police and prisons. I'm Kiss. I'm Damon. We have a great conversation on this episode, but before we get there, we want to start with the story that led to the experiment we're talking to today. Miriam Kaba and Bianca Diaz have brought to the world the abolitionist children's book, See You Soon. And we are fortunate to present you this text read by the participants of Queenie's Crew. This book is dedicated to the irreplaceable Keely Shinwar. You are missed. Queenie is what they call me, but Rena is my name. I'm six years old and my life is about to change. My mama, she's been sick since I was very small. Sometimes she goes away when she isn't feeling well at all. A girl at school named Keisha sometimes says mean things to me. Your mama, she takes drugs. Your mama is a junkie. Keisha's words stain my heart and leave me feeling sad. Don't pay her any mind, Grandma Louise. Your mama, she's sick, and that doesn't mean she's sad. When mama isn't sick, we are two peas in a pot. We shop at the grocery store from aisles, even and odd. We share ice cream sundaes and play games at the park. We wash clothes at the laundromat and watch fireflies in the dark. Today we're riding on a train, Grandma, Mama, and me. We'll board the bus to the county jail once we get out of the city. Grandma is reading the Bible. Mama's looking out the window. No one is speaking, not one word. We don't have much further to go. I have so many questions I ask, but I'm afraid. I push my fingers through my mama's, weaving on tight like a grape. Standing tall in front of the jail, I breathe in and find the strength. I ask mama, where will you sleep? She looks like her heart will break. Can I see your room? I ask. Mama's eyes are bright with tears. No, baby girl, no one is allowed. She speaks, but I don't hear. I wonder what mama's cell looks like. Will it be cold inside? Are there warm blankets for her? My heart is pounding. I want to run and hide. I look into mama's eyes. I don't want to see her cry. I don't want mama to go to jail. She should always be by my side. Who will help me braid my hair? Who will I ask about homework? Mama makes a bundle and my chest begins to hurt. Mama opens her arms and wraps me up. She hugs me so, so tight. You be good. Take care of grandma. Baby girl, I'll be all right. So many questions are swirling in my head. I have time for just one more. When will I see you again, Mama? Soon, Queenie, soon, she says to me. Time will fly. Don't you worry, my Queenie. Grandma Louise takes my hand and we walk to the door. Two years is not soon, I yell so mad my face turns red. Grandma gives me a look, and I say, sorry, and hang my head. I don't want to leave my mama. She'll be in there all alone, but Grandma says that it's time to go. We've got to catch the bus and train home. Mama kisses my cheeks, wet with tears. She turns and walks through the gate. I want to beg her not to go, to stay with us. Grandma and I are quiet as we ride home. When we arrive, I run into my room. Just wanted to be alone. But there's a brand new quilt on my bed. It has feathers of Mama and me, opening presents at Christmas, eating birthday cake. Mama holding me when I was a baby. I throw myself on the bed and wrap myself in memories. I fall asleep dreaming of my mama, her voice saying, sweet dreams, Queenie. The next day at school, my mind is wandering. The teacher calls on me, but I don't hear. Is mama lonely without me? Is she doing okay? My heart is very heavy with worry and fear. Two long weeks go by. And then, when school is done, I find a letter on my bed. It's my mama's handwriting, shining bright like the sun. The letter reads to my baby girl, Queenie, from mama. I open it slowly, gently. I sit down on my bed to read it, and my heart fills with peace. Dear baby girl, this is your mama, and I love you. 
I loved you before I even met you. I love you still, and I always will. Even though I'm away, my love is always here to stay. See you soon, Queenie. Love, Mama. Me, you, Grandma Louise, eating raspas at the park. Grandma comes into my room. She has a grilled cheese sandwich for me to eat. She says, do you want to visit your mama next Saturday? I jump up and down and cheer up. Yes, yes, yes. I rain down kisses all over Grandma's face. When bedtime comes, I hold the letter as darkness fills my room. I fall asleep hearing my mama's voice. See you soon, Queenie. See you soon. Story time was always my favorite part of the school day. Yep, yep. Much better than science class. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we do have a method here to, to maintain. So let's welcome back into the lab our partner in decriminalization, Eva Nagao. Yeah, yeah. Present. <laughs> <laughs> hey, y'all. <laughs> Eva, first of all, how'd it feel to listen to that reading? And uh, what do we need to know before we hop into today's interview? I don't know about y'all listeners, but every time I listen to that reading, I cry a little bit. So it feels um, beautiful. It feels sad. It feels cathartic. Um, I'm glad that it's something that we get to share with the world. And we're here talking about two experiments today, really. You know, there is the experiment that is See You Soon, a book that Miriam Kaba put out into the world to really create more support for small people whose parents were incarcerated to support each other to have small people who understand each other when they're going through these experiences. And that is really what breathed life into this idea of Queenie's crew. You know, Queenie, the main character in this story, this is her crew growing out all over. I was just so honored that uh, Zara Raven, our guest for today, agreed to come on. Zara Raven is one of the parents in Queenie's crew. Z is also the coordinator of Queenie's crew. It's a crew that engages children in learning about building communities of care without prisons or policing. Every month, members receive an email with an activity that kids can complete to learn more about abolition. And they share activities like coloring pages, word searches, word scrambles, reflection exercises. Using readings and art projects, they support children in imagining a collective future where we are all free. And the participants get to meet, share, do art together, um, get dope patches. And as part of that, the caregivers and parents of all these small people also meet together and talk about kind of what this experience is like to be bringing small abolitionists into the world. Um, membership to Queenie's crew is right now currently closed, and the project is actually set to sunset at the end of the year, which we'll talk more about in this interview. But this means that it is a true, true one million experiment in that we hope that this plants some seeds for more Queenie's crews or people who are interested in doing this work going forward. The clip that you just heard with all our Queenie's crew members reading See You Soon is also available in our show notes. It's a video that shows the, the small people and all the beautiful illustrations by Bianca Diaz. And while the conversation we get into is probably more useful for caregivers than for young people, we do encourage you to share that video of the reading or, or the book itself with the young people in your life. All right. Get your snacks, get your fruit roll up, get your apple juice and pretzels ready. Let's hop into the lab with Zara Raven. All right, we are here. We are back in the lab. We are so excited to welcome to the lab Zara Raven from Queenie's Crew. Bruh, bruh, bruh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> thank you all for having me. Uh, thank you for being here. We like to start all our conversations in the tradition of a two-part question. And this question is centered around time. Interpret it how you will. This day, this season, this hour, this lifetime. In this time, Zara, how is the world treating you and how are you treating the world? Ooh, that is such a beautiful question. Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, hard to say. You know, on this day, I can say the sun is shining. I'm thriving. You know, I worked in my garden next door this past weekend. So really looking to care for 
the land, for my community, for little ones. So I hope to be treating the world well as well and for the world to be thriving. And also I know that we're living in a time of, you know, increased anti-trans legislation, increased violence, rising fascism. And so it's just a difficult time to be in this world, right? Um, and also we just keep going. Yeah. So we'll we'll get to those terrible things and how we move through them, but I want to start with the garden. How are the starts doing? What's coming up? What's in the soil? Yeah. Ooh, thanks for asking. So um, it's funny. I just moved into this place and it was really just a lot full of trash. Um, so really right now, I have been clearing trash, clearing glass, picking up random like asthma pumps, all kinds of things I've been finding. Um, but there was once a garden there. And so we were able to weed. I have a little group working with me, some of my neighbors and friends. And in my backyard, I'm growing kale, culantro, scotch bonnet peppers, and gandules. So yeah, so those are things I'm growing, but nothing is in the ground yet. We haven't even tested the soil yet. I love that you're uh, you're planting with a delicious meal in mind to have the gandules and the peppers already out there. Yeah. You're like, I'm envisioning a future where these live together, you know? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, um, it, you know, I think in some ways you set us up with a, a perfect segue here in thinking about nurturing and growing and cultivation. And we're really excited to get into the work that Queenie's crew has done and, and who y'all are. And to do so, we have this very fraught, science metaphor that we rely on on the show as two people who did not well in science class finessed um, my way through yeah we've tried we've tried to recapture <laughs> and uh reuse the idea and recycle the idea of a hypothesis um so when when you started queenie's crew what was the hypothesis for what the work would be and what it could make possible i tell you my hypothesis <gasps> So really, Queenie's Crew is the brainchild of Miriam Kaba, like so many projects. It's just true. Miriam and uh, Bianca Diaz wrote and illustrated the book See You Soon, which is about a six-year-old girl named Queenie who gets separated from her mother by incarceration. And, you know, there, there's not a happy ending at the end of the story. They don't get reunited. And that is the reality for a lot of kids, for a lot of families who are separated by state violence. And so Miriam wanted to think about and brought me in to think about what could we do to support kids and families who are reading this story so that they know there are things that you can do to interrupt state violence and to build communities of care. And so that's where the premise of teaching six to 10 year olds um, about building communities of care without prisons or policing came from. And that's something that I've been working to do in my home and in my community as a parent and as a caregiver. I'm raising a nine-year-old and I'm a prison abolitionist and have been a longtime organizer. One of my mantras, and this kind of comes from the book by Leah Lakshmi, Kiepsna Samarasina, and um, Jay Dulani and Ching and Chen, the revolution starts at home. Like we start that work in our homes, in our families, in our communities with the way that we treat each other. That's what the program is all about, harnessing the creativity and imagination of kids to learn to build communities of care sort of before they get ruined by the world. <laughs> I, I want to name my excitements about the work of Queenie's crew as an invitation for you to share what are some of your most prominent excitements as somebody so intimately involved. So for me as a you know fellow part of you know, Merriam's tribe and, you know, working to expand this notion of abolition in people's minds and actions and, you know, for future generations and today. What I have found is like introducing not of the ideology of cops and prisons are bad, which is, I think, a very easy one to get to. And many of us are very practiced in navigating folks and facilitating folks to that understanding. But then the way of being that abolition demands of us and the notion of this new type of presence, this new type of intervention, this new type of relationship and responsibility. That is very hard to introduce to people in their lives in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s and beyond, right? Like even if people want to, even if people are saying the agreements, even if people share the ideology, actually living and taking that on in the minutia feels 
that it becomes overwhelming for most people. So I am so excited <laughs> to see that it's not an unlearning or a relearning, but a part of the initial learning and development. And what then is possible for future facilitators, for the notion of what a process means, for the lesson need for emergency processes all the time, because there are people who are nurtured to nurture or to be in healthy relationship with each other, makes the idea of interrupting violence, creating new safeties so tasty, so possible, so tangible, so there. So that's me. So that is an offering to you to share as someone doing the work. What are some of the excitements that maybe we don't have access to because we're not seeing all of this beautiful work with these young ones? Yeah. Oh, thank you so much for sharing your excitement. You're right. Yeah, it is exciting because yeah, as, to... <laughs> <laughs> as adults, we have so much unlearning to do and Kids have so much to teach us. I'm constantly learning from being around kids because they ask questions. They're constantly asking questions. I'll be like, ooh, screen time limits. That's important. And my kid will be like, why? And then I actually like sat down and read some studies and it was like, no, no this is not rooted in anything. It's just like <laughs> something we made up and repeated. I think um, with Queenie's crew, the kids already have a lot of great ideas. And what we've been doing is there are so many pieces of it that I'm excited about. So we've been working with artists. Um, we don't have a huge budget. So we usually look to existing art and then we'll be able to like pay artists to license their work. And then Bianca, um, who is the book's illustrator, uh, will work with me to turn the art into activities for the kids that invites them to share their ideas and to think about some of these questions. How do we build communities of care? So for example, we did an activity a couple of months ago that was just refund our communities. And it was a pie chart. And we got this from um, Rania Elmugamar's um, Transformative Justice with Little Ones toolkit. Kids just wrote in the pie chart, you know, this is what I would spend money on um, if I were funding my community. And it's like, food, water, public transit. My kid wrote also not public transit because they also want to take Ubers. So I'm there's that. Yeah. <laughs> but some of the work that I've been most excited about is the conflict transformation work because it allows us to think about how we build accountable communities and how we shift the focus away from who's going to be punished and what are the consequences of a behavior and towards what are the needs um, and how do we support people who are harmed? So we adapted the Bay Area Transformative Justice Collective's pod mapping worksheets and kids planned out like, who will I call? Who will I contact? And what are the resources in my community if I cause harm or if I experience harm? And then we also pulled a page from the book where a kid is making fun of Queenie and we turned it into a comic strip. So in the first piece of the comic strip, we put a speech bubble so that kids can write their own. And then the second is Queenie with a thought bubble. And we ask, you know, so like, what's something that someone has said that hurt your feelings? And how did you feel? Tap into what you were feeling in that moment. And what did you need? afterwards. So again, rather than saying, this person needs to be punished, I want this person to be sent to timeout or whatever, kids were encouraged to think about, well, what did I need? I needed a hug. I needed a friend. So just completely reframing the ways that we think about accountability and starting early. Mm. What I'm already hearing is something that jumped out in the beginning of your answer is you know, even in describing who you are, you're like, I am a abolitionist and a parent. And I, I'm, I'm thinking about the process that I can imagine happened of trying to figure out how to weave those together. You know, some of the examples that you just named, they epitomize that beautifully. Um, but I could imagine that there was even just on a personal level, a learning curve in figuring out how do I bring these two worlds together? Because so much of the messaging, just like for adults around parenting you know, holds these punitive understandings or power dynamics. And so, yeah, what was that kind of like learning and growth process for you in the moments where you were like, oh, maybe this is an opportunity to bridge those two and make them into the one that they exist within you? Mm, that's an interesting question. I do think actually for me, I've always been a little bit of an outcast. Like as soon as I became a parent and a caregiver, 
that was the lens that I was adopting. Like, how do I want to do this? And it was partially because I was a foster kid. So I was like moved around a lot. I was a street kid. And I didn't have a lot of like safe adults or caregivers in my life, but I also didn't have much of a blueprint. And so coming into abolitionist politics in my early 20s, that was where I was finding my blueprint. And that was around the time that I was becoming a parent. And so it was a constant question of how do I practice this? You know, I've always been an organizer, but my organizing really started rooted in my own experiences. And I think mostly it was, yeah, like, how do we find safety from sexual violence? How do we find safety from intimate partner abuse? And so it was always a practice of like, how do we do this in our everyday lives? It sounds like that as a parent, the continuation of like, how do I connect the whole to the particular and meet the needs that like I've had and understand that for other people seems like a continuation when there's another person, a little person there too. Yeah. yeah. I think there were definitely things I have continued to have to unlearn. Like I'm definitely still messing up and still noticing ways that I live and breathe oppressive systems too. For example, um, when school shut down in 2020, I saw that my kid was in more Zoom meetings than me each day and <laughs> was just really swamped as a six-year-old. And I was like, that seems overwhelming. And also, what are you learning and what what's happening? So I think I am constantly finding and learning about ways that I have taken for granted certain things like schooling, having a kid in school as just necessary parts of childhood. And I've been in this process of unschooling and unlearning. And also, even in those spaces, even in unschooling spaces, they're not all necessarily prison abolitionists, which is a little bit of a struggle because that doesn't mean they're not doing punishments. And, you know, like it's a constant work in progress. In talking about what you're navigating as a parent and connecting that to your own experiences growing up, it actually um, is crystallizing more of the power of what Queenie's crew is embodying. Because as I was first thinking about the work and hearing about it and learning, I'm thinking like, oh, great, we are preparing for these people 10 years, 20 years in the future, 30 years in the future, right? You know, which is valuable. But, and you, you know, paralleling the pandemic and your own experience, it just reminds me of how much carcerality parallels and intersects with how we just raise children as a society, right? Like the, the way that schools are organized, obviously the way that the foster system is, if not a shadow, a feeder or a part of carceral systems. And, you know, just the, the language of punishment doesn't get introduced through criminal justice. It gets usually introduced through parenting and through child. And At so home, yeah. really what is also happening is equipping children to, from like liberation against adultism and the violence that we put against them as children, as opposed to just like, this is camp it's for you to one day be, you know, a good right. movement activist. This is actually equipping you to understand your world and what you're navigating and having to experience now. And I'm assuming giving you tools to actually like assert agency in deeper ways than are our norms. Does that sound right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's not like I, I don't need to, I mean, even though I did this too, like teach you the, you know, um, Black Panther Party's <laughs> history. I need to listen to you. I need to ask you what you think and how you want to structure the world. Exactly. It's, it's handing power back to kids, listening to kids, and then um, really as caregivers interrogating our own adultism. I'm glad you you named that piece. Just this idea that we we have all the answers and also you're going to follow these rules or I'm going to punish you. Um, that's what we as adults need to interrogate if we want to build liberated futures, if we want kids not to replicate like Patricia Hill Collins has an essay from I want to say the 90s called It's All in the Family and she talks about the family as a site where a lot of the violences of oppressive systems, of borders, where that is sort of replicated. And so the family can also be an important site of resistance, of breaking through this idea of 
borders, oppressive hierarchies, um, patriarchy. We could just do it differently. All right, I'm having to, to catch myself because I have so many big picture questions, but I want to be considerate of the listeners a little bit and like ground in the the activities and the practices of the work. You know, what are some of the the origin activities that came about? What have been some of the practices and programs that have like, you know, become muscle memory that feel good? And what are some of the the works that you're looking to do for people who are one just interested and want to celebrate and support, but maybe want to figure out how to form models or experiments in the vein of Queenie's crew? What y'all been doing? <laughs> yeah. Um, thank you for regrounding in the in the because uh, I was activity. about to go. I was about to go to pedagogy. I was. Oh I, my god! I, I just know. Wanna, we could talk theory. <laughs> put a, I'm gonna put a pin in it. That was my big word. I was coming to. I had to, I had to catch myself. Is what happened. <laughs> yeah. So we've done a lot of really awesome activities. We did Mother's Day cards for incarcerated mamas last year. We worked with a few artists, Rami Tallarico, um, who has a piece where it says safety is, and then we let the kids fill in what does safety mean to you. Um, Micah Bazant has portraits of um, Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson. So last year for Pride Month in June, we took those portraits and turned them into a word scramble. So the message on the portraits is no pride for some of us without liberation for all of us. And so the kids had to you know, go through, we used little different pride flags and they had to match up like what's the letter to this flag and decode the message. Um, So we've done a lot of really fun activities. It is a virtual program, which in some ways is really wonderful because it gives folks who may not have um, abolitionist community, especially communities of abolitionist caregivers in their lives, a space and a community where they are able to talk through, you know, challenges with people with similar values. Um, so I think that's been really wonderful. And also it's hard to do virtual programming, especially with kids who are, and all of us, I think, um, or many of us are burned out on being on Zoom. Um, I'm burnt out being off Zoom too. I'm just, uh, just- <laughs> 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 Chris. Just burned out in general. But we have a little crew here in Philly that gets together and we do activities together. Um, so yeah, those are some some of the activities we've done. I want to stay on the realities of doing this work virtually because I think, you know, you mentioned watching your kid step into virtual schooling uh, in pandemic. And, you know, there was so much kind of social political hand-wringing around the pros and cons of that. Um, and I think, you know, in some ways, a lot of that was rooted in trying to figure out how do we, quote, like, keep order and punish kids when we can't have them in the same room. Like, the the structure of schooling, as we've named, having those carceral logics in it, like, wasn't conducive to everyone being in the comfort of their own home. Um, and I think that was a, at least a piece of the, like, pushback or concern there. And there were, of course, also, like, challenges for some students in learning in that way as well. Um, but so I'm wondering, in building this space virtually, what have you learned about how to engage young people on a screen, on a call that have worked really well for you? Yeah. I mean, we don't have a ton of virtual events. We've had a couple of virtual events that have been very interactive. So um, we brought Key Gross in to do Wondering Towards Abolitionist Futures and kids were brainstorming and made a song together. Um, We just did an event last month. Um, My friend Mara Razo and I taught zine making for conflict transformation. So the kids, again, are doing an activity. They're making a zine. We gave them prompts like, what happened? Um, What were you feeling at the time? What can you take responsibility for? And what did you need? So I think having kids working on activities and talking to each other and sharing, creating art, that's been fantastic. And also, we've had a couple of events now just for caregivers that I think have really been helpful. And I say caregivers to include, you know, all folks who work with kids, teachers, educators, parents, people who spend time with little ones. And I think that's been a great space because then adults can access support from each other, but the work is happening in their own community. And Queenie's crew and Project Near are sunsetting at the end of this year. So the hope is definitely for folks to 
be building in their own homes, in their own communities with the tools and the resources and the information that we have shared and to continue nurturing their relationships where they are. So I want to talk a little bit about that sunsetting. It's something that we've tried to have a deeper conversation with on the show because it is so hard when you build something from scratch to be able to like, you know, understand when it's time to, to set it down. And I wonder if there are lessons from being a parent in that, you know, childhood has so many stages, you know, things that both literally and figuratively like fit for a kid at one point, like six months, a year later, and they're no longer at that point. You know, I think about like when I come home to visit and my parents like have the snack I loved when I was six, that's maybe not still my, my favorite snack now, but like, you know, I've, I've, I've sunsetted on, on uh fruit oh, snacks, man. you know? Jerry and I'm going here. This you, you just you that's know, all right. I also it's also not snacks? true, but okay. I was I was using it as a rhetorical device. <laughs> <Okay>. Also, <laughs> my my snack choice as a kid was on point. I've realized that like mostly what it was, I just had quality taste in snacks as a child. Like my was pretzel it the fruit app- snacks. What were you? No. <laughs> he likes old people pretzels, snacks. <laughs> pretzels, apple cider. You get your sweet, your salty. You get like some different textures. You get some snap. You get the little sour like tart tang that's on hilarious. the back of the cider. Remains a bop to this day, a pretzel and an apple cider. <laughs> Those are old people's snacks. <laughs> it, it gets drier from there. He's, he's, a, he's a, a dry. I, I love pretzels too, but he's been a dried fruit enthusiast since yeah. he was three. <laughs> and seltzer. Dried fruit but, seltzer is his party. We over here having fun. Right, roll ups having fun. No, I'm joking. <laughs> he's much healthier for Roll ups are good. Yeah. I guess you can't roll up a pretzel. That would be tough. But <laughs> soft pretzel, perhaps. Um, but I bring that all up to say, like, are there ways as you think about like building a beautiful thing and then releasing it that 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 ties into the experience of being a parent? Ooh, wow. I hadn't really thought about that connection, but that is a beautiful connection to make because, yeah, kids are are constantly growing, evolving, changing. My kid has changed their name like five times, <laughs> um, changed their gender probably just as many times. And kids teach us so much about, uh, yeah, embracing change and transformation. Uh, and I guess that is sort of what sunsetting an organization is like, like, this is what was needed for this time. And there will always be, you know, things that will be needed that we'll have to keep building and reinventing and we'll have lessons learned from this project and, and we will evolve. Yeah. No, I, I love that metaphor. I mean, you raised the kid. I just came up with the metaphor. <laughs> so, so from that point of lessons learned, I think I'm going to do it now. But I'm, I'm going to keep us grounded. But I think it's it's pedagogy time. Um, so what I want to be on pedagogy. Pedagogy in the morning. All right. So I want to I want to break down the word because it's one of those big words that gets thrown out all the time. But but you said about these lessons learned. Um, and one thing you said very early on is the young people are teaching us new things. And so if my understanding of pedagogy is like the methods and practices of how we teach, uh, which then informs how we learn. And so I'm curious, as this is sunsetting, one, what are some of the ways of teaching that you have learned from the young people? And what are some of the ways of teaching that are needed for young people. And I want to ground it in an old ergo adage. Uh, A few years ago, I don't remember what conversation we were in, but this idea came that we should treat all people the way we treat young people. And when that doesn't feel right, we should reassess how we're treating young people. Mm. first and foremost and then mm-hmm. uh, you know move on from there right so the, the 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 kindness the nurturing the grace um the permission the forgiveness uh that we offer to what we conceive of as a child is actually how we should treat people and when that doesn't feel right and you feel infantilized that means we should probably assess how adultism and ageism shows up so with that kind of as the background what have we learned about how to teach these principles around conflict, around abolition, around making this new world that has come from children, that has come from working with children, uh, that we can maybe expand in all of our spaces and projects? The yeah. pedagogy, pedagogy, pedagogy. <laughs> <laughs> I would say it's just ask questions. That's mm-hmm. what kids do best. They ask questions. They stay curious. And I, and I think that's what we need to do, you know? And now I've gotten better at when my kid asks me a question, either we'll go on a rabbit hole together and just find the answers together, or 
I will ask questions back to support them in figuring out what is it that they believe? What is it that they want? So I think asking questions is the pedagogy and staying curious. Oh, I love that. And we are biased as interviewers. That's a great <laughs> answer. <laughs> um, you know, some of the questions that you named in these activities are, of course, really poignant questions for anyone to try to figure out for themselves. Are there any answers or patterns in what you've heard from some of the young folks you've been talking to in, around these questions of safety that have been surprising or stuck out for you that maybe were challenging in some ways or, or pushed you to think in a different way? Um, I think a lot of the kids know so much. I guess they're self-selecting. The families are self-selecting into the program. So a lot of these parents and caregivers are likely already abolitionists talking to their kids about how we build safer communities. And some also always just like, wow, true. Let's see, I'm really like looking through. Now. And it's fine if there isn't. That yeah. means that yeah. people are on the same page. Alignment but, and affirmment. but I just feel like when we've worked with young folks, that's often my experience is like the, it's not always like in opposition, but it'll just be an understanding of a thing that I hadn't thought they, about. They threw a way. wrench in there. It's like, oh, let me, let me accommodate for that wrench. Oh, wow. Now I have a better way of saying this, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm always amazed and um, in awe of kids' self-awareness. Like when we were doing the zine making for conflict transformation, just the ways that kids talked through and thought through, what was the conflict? What was my role in it? How can I communicate? Just their incredible self-awareness, self-accountability. And maybe I'm in awe because I, I don't always get that from adults. Yeah. <laughs> Almost never. It's Almost so never. rare. That in particular, like the understanding could be there, but the like opting in to participating and self-reflection and self-accounting. And it's something that actually Miriam said at some point, I can't remember when she said it, maybe it was in the first episode of this series of like, partly that's because we have no cultural incentives to do that. Like when the response to having done something harmful is punishment, you have zero incentive to account for the harm that you've done because you know you'll receive punishment. And be, like that's a very cause and effect. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And so if you build those other incentives for participation, it can open up a new willingness, I think. Um, yeah. Kids are, kids, if they know that they're not going to be punished for what they share, they're going to open up. They're going to take accountability. They're going to work to resolve their conflicts. You know, now that I think about it, I will say the one thing that inspires me about what I've seen kids do is just the way that they're able to tap into their feelings, their experiences, and assert themselves in ways that I think even for me as a child and sometimes even as an adult have not felt like safe or comfortable to do, but that they're so grounded in their own and each other's experiences. Um, that I think is another important part, not just like trusting that adults around you won't punish you, but you know, if you want something, you're going to communicate, you're going to ask for it. You're going to name what you need and you're going to negotiate with the people around you who are also naming what they need. You know, kids have conflicts on the playground all the time. I want the swing. Okay. I want the swing. And they, they come to resolution and compromise and they learn to play together. And I think as adults, I think a lot of us can be really conflict avoidant depending on, you know, what identities you hold. Um, and so for me, I think like as a femme of color, just always learning to silence myself, silence my needs, make myself more like palatable for other people. I think it's a lesson to be able to see kids saying, no, this is what I need and then communicate it and work through conflicts. Mm. This conditioning towards avoidance that has happened through all of this conflict. And I think we we usually talk about our limitations in cooperation being about folks who create conflict or who are air quote like disruptive, but also so much of it is built from this like bottling, this suppression, and then this like pressure explosion of things right. bubbling over, whether they bubble over into the space or that requires someone just to, you know, remove themselves or to take distance. Um, and yeah, you know, I am part of the care team of a young person and this new generational self-assertion and lack of aversion to, to conflict. You know, you have to figure out the boundaries and like the principles of how to engage in conflict. But that's something that really excites me. 
Yeah. And they, and they apply that towards, you know, everything towards gender, the ways they think about genders, the way they think about their own identities. Um, and that's, there's so much that adults can learn from that. So just moving me towards hope. So I, I wanted to acknowledge that this is my question though. So you, you, um, have referenced throughout the, the caretakers and there being, you know, in some ways, uh, uh, informal and I'm, I'm sure intentional network. Um, and again, in first hearing and learning about the work, my thought is like, oh, this is abolitionist youth training, right? But the possibilities of these folks who are already aligned or from, you know, similar orientations, the organizing potential of that. And so what has become more possible? What has been learned? What new connections, what deepenings have been made through the adults that have interacted through this space, whether that's through, you know, just freshening up on their principles or the organizing of meeting or or deepening with people that they know? Yeah. I mean, I personally have built um, some beautiful relationships through the program and I hope other caregivers can say the same. And also just that we're we're always learning from each other. And there are adults and caregivers who are involved in this space in different ways who are also doing their own organizing work. So one of the parents is, for example, the Movement for Family Power Director, Erin Miles Cloud. Her work focuses on ending family policing. So finding those intersections, deepening our own analysis as adults and as caregivers, because we all have work to do. We all have growth to do. You know, maybe this has been my lane for a long time, but deepening in understanding family policing or even just letter writing to incarcerated folks. So like, yeah, just being able to learn from each other's skills and experiences and, and yeah, just making friends who have shared values. Yeah. That that's, that's about as good as a Zoom meeting can get, you know? Right. <laughs> um, I want to do something that we almost never do on this show, and for good reason, but it, it feels particularly germane to the conversation, which is I want to talk about, like, the bad guys in relation to this issue. I think it's really important because the embodied practice that you're talking about is what this united rising fascist front is, if not most afraid of, most vocally adamant about being in opposition to right now and in some ways like they're not wrong that the possibilities that this create will challenge their power and do challenge their power you know i don't want to give the space to their ideologies there's plenty of that there's plenty of place for that but i am wondering just on a personal level you know in embodying this practice in parenting the way you're discussing in being in community how do you make sense of, how do you navigate, how do you hold yourself and the people you love when the type of exploration, political education, bodily autonomy, challenging of adultism is like at the spear tip of, of this encroachment on like all of our lives? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. No, I, I similarly don't like to give a lot of attention mm -hmm. to the transphobes and the fascists and also they're just constantly <laughs> interfering they're, they're, they're saying look at me for the record the moms for liberty is having a conference here in philly at the end of june early july and so act up is, has been organizing phones apps to try to get marriott to cancel their contract but yeah i mean it's scary it's scary to be a parent caregiver especially caregiving for a, a trans kid in this time we just moved to philly and like you know, it was very much like, oh my God, where could I even live? And and also have to just pretend the state of Florida doesn't exist. So there's that piece, just the horror and and of it all. And also I think my focus tends to be on building the connections and relationships in my own community, having conversations with people in my own community, knowing that we all have some work to do. For example, I recently let my kid start walking alone. They're nine. And I believe that kids should be free to be autonomous and to be able to roam their neighborhoods. And I've gotten a lot of, a lot of, I'll call it feedback. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have a, a next door neighbor, I don't know if he'll ever listen to this, who is always like, you know, I'm looking out for you. This is not the kind of neighborhood where people look out for each other. Like, this isn't safe. You can't be letting your kid walk around. And so just having conversations with my neighbor and just being like, well, first off, 
you started that with, you've been looking out for us. Like, I think this is the neighborhood where we look out for each other. And I think this is a neighborhood where we take care of each other. And we're doing that right here and now. And you have, you know, certain beliefs and I have certain beliefs, I think. And I, you know, I see this to everybody who challenges me on, on the, like stranger danger stuff that like most violence happens in the home. It's, it's not strangers that we don't need to be afraid of. It's the vast majority of attacks on women and girls are perpetrated by people we know. And so that's where the work needs to happen in our own relationships in our own communities in our own neighborhoods. And I think that happens through conversation. And so the other day, actually, this neighbor who had been giving me a little bit of a hard time, I was working in the garden and he came over and he was like, you know, if I had any time, I'd be out here with you. And then goes back into his house and brings like a, a weeder and, and just like weeds a bunch. And I was like, yeah, I wish you had some time. And then he was like, you know, if I didn't have anywhere to be, then I would just be in the dirt with you. Goes back into his house, brings another tool. And I'm just like, so you're just, you're just here. You're just in this with us. You have time. <laughs> <laughs> First of all. I don't know if he had time actually, but he was he was making, making the time. <laughs> and I think that's probably why to bring it back to the garden. Um that that garden project is so important to me. I think we just have to meet our neighbors and engage in conflict with our neighbors and find a new way right there. And also obviously call the Marriott. But it's also in all of us. There's not a space that's immune from oppressive violences and systems. And so doing our own work in ourselves and in our communities, that's where I keep my focus. Yeah, I think that when you're not as actively engaged in doing that in your space, it feels like that won't be enough. It gets it can be very easy to be focused on that. And I think, you know, part of the goal of the show is to invite people into action. And so when you're doing it, it's not like the other stuff, the larger scale harm falls away, but you know that what you're doing is what you can do and is what you can give. Uh, and that makes it, if not easier, at least it gives a balance to the, I think, at least for me, the intensity of the the encroachment a little bit. Does that ring true at all? Absolutely. Yeah, we have to cultivate those safer environments for especially queer and trans kids, black kids, kids of color. Like we cultivate those in our own spaces, build those, grow those, interrupt the ways that we might even want to infringe upon that. <laughs> and that's an incredible resistance. Mm. So to, to go back to our, our, our front metaphor as we close, if I'm remembering correctly, the last part of the, of the scientific method is conclusions. And so at this point, as you have been building the work of Queenie's crew and are thinking about what the sunset looks like. What are some of your conclusions about what this work makes possible, you know, if we're going through the, the portal of young people having access and caregivers having access to this type of space? Yeah, there are now a lot of resources, more and more resources that I'm always seeing about how we talk to and support kids through abolitionist values and perspectives. So my hope would be that folks just build in their own communities and, and you don't have to be a parent to do that, to be a caregiver. I loved Damon when you said you're on a care team for a kid. That's what we need. We need care teams and villages and, and just people of all ages learning to take care of each other. And so I hope that folks will yeah continue to do that in their own communities. Beautiful. You know, I, I know this will be coming out not long before before that sunsetting, but how can folks find the work of Queenie's crew in the way that y'all would like to be found? Yeah, so um, definitely join our newsletter and you can do that by checking out our website. I'm sorry, I'm just looking to see if it's .org.com. <laughs> like, I just what? have this up. What I can help you. Again? I'm prepared. It is .com. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time, your brilliance, your your sunlight. This has felt like a yeah a very like ray of light into the work we've been doing. So thank you for for doing what you do and, and sharing it with us. Oh, thank you so much for um for reaching out and for highlighting this work and for yeah just engaging in this conversation with me. Yeah, kids are so um inspiring and it's fun to talk about them, right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. All right, everybody. 
no further ado, it's time for the peer review. We have to welcome back into the lab the one and only Eva Nagao. Eva, what's up? Welcome back. How are you feeling? What are you hearing? What did you take away from that conversation? Let's let's chop it up. Hoping I don't offend all my peers. Thanks, Dame. I am so excited that we we finally got this out to the world and just in the nick of time for next week's Building Your Abolitionist Toolbox with Interrupting Criminalization and Project Nia. If you're listening to this when it airs, then please join us. We're going to have Queenie's crew um, back in another lab to talk a little bit more about the ins and outs of how to talk about abolition with small people and with other caregivers of small people. So I encourage everyone who's enjoying this episode to join us there. And if you're listening to this after the fact, then don't worry, there's a recording and a zine. Shout out to the zines. (laughs) Shout out to the zines. We've been dormant, but this one is, guys, this one is good. And of course, we'll share the link to that zine in the show notes as well as on millionexperiments.com. So now that folks know that, let's dive a little deeper into the conversation. What jumped out from the perspective and the experience that Zara shared? For me, this was a special place to land in this season because I met Mariam Kaba through the Chicago Freedom School as a youth doing youth work. And it has always remained important to me to have young people in my life and for those young people to be exposed to abolition and these ideas. And so to see something like Queenie's Crew all these years later warms my, my, cold, my cold little heart. <laughs> you are the least <laughs> grinchy person to ever use that phrase. <laughs> Zara's love and, and effervescence was an embodiment of like what excites me about this project. And we kind of talked about a little bit of like, I'm very fascinated in consciousness that is nurtured or inherited as opposed to having to be found or having to be worked through, right? So like to have this understanding of care and of abolition before you can even really conceive of like the capital S state as your understanding of self and identity is forming to be already equipped with notions of liberation and with notions of community that are not available in a lot of our normal spaces is really just so exciting for me because literally it wasn't until having this conversation I realized how much of our whole job in all of the auspices are just like unlearning, right? Or, Or deprogramming the way in which we've been conditioned by these systems and structures. So this being there, I think about, you know, I mentioned being a caretaker. I, you know, I think about my nephew Ori and if he sees, you know, some carceral things happening too much around, he'll say like, no 12 and he's four years old. Right. And like <laughs> that idea is really exciting of like, what are we building up as we, you know, are creating this collective abolitionist garden? It's a great way to teach counting. Honestly, <laughs> once you get past 10, you got a little prompt built in there. And, and I think to your point, Dame, it actually can serve as a tool for young people, not just in relation to the state, but in relation to the like conflicts and contradictions in their lives as kids, right? So we actually got to hear this audio of one of the Queenie's crew participants sharing what they had collected in a zine that they wrote. Um, and in that, we're, we're going to play a little clip. Like you can hear an access to language around what they're feeling that I think would be helpful for so many young people, including I would have loved to have had that as a kid, right? So much of childhood is feeling feeling so strongly and not knowing how to name what you're feeling. And by childhood, I mean adulthood as well. And, and so, yeah, I think there's just a lot that it can give uh, to that. So let, let's just play that clip so you can hear what I'm talking about. All right, so this is mine. This right here is my mom cooking, and this is me. And then I was like, I'm going to clean my room, but I want to draw something first because it's going to be a lot of work. Mm -hmm. And then she comes in my room, and she's all mad because I'm just drawing. And I hear her yell, and I'm like, oh, no. I was like, I feel overwhelmed. So I decided to draw to calm down, but I didn't communicate to you. So, yeah, when we talk about, you know, policing lives in our hearts and minds, this is a potential point of intervention to keep that from happening in this next generation of young people. And I think that that's really valiant and important work. That's such a good point, Daniel. I mean, if anybody's really been listening to one of me and the Ergo channels and know from me, like I've been 
almost obsessing over the ways in which folks show up to spaces and how do we like create more containers or more solutions or have more practices to hold all the fractured ways we kind of poke each other. And a lot of that poking, as we have this conversation, I realize is from this internal policing and this internal punishment that we grew up with. And so how exciting it is for the gatherings and the circles and the containers of 15 years from now of the Queenie crew ecosystem, <laughs> you know, that can meet with each other, that have, that now have this um, fuller language to access their whole humanity. Yeah, Zara mentioned, you know, this isn't a training ground for the next generation of organizers. But if that's an unintended consequence. But we do need that. We could use that, yeah. <laughs> but no, that's it's, not all it's for. <laughs> it's more, I mean, I think that's what's so fascinating, so beautiful to me about these projects that are popping up around abolition and young people is that this is equipping young people to have conversations with each other, to support each other, to be in struggle together. Because so many young people in our lives are feeling the brunt of state violence, are feeling the brunt of family separation, are feeling the interjection of uh, the PIC into their own lives. And so for them to be able to understand each other and support each other in that is you know, a beautiful thing. And I think also, as you know, Zara and Miriam talk about this is a great way to activate other adults. And it doesn't have to be my friends with kids even. I mean, this is a beautiful story and a thing to expose folks to. And I think in a great entryway into conversation, it's something that Miriam has talked a lot about before. She's made a, a list of books to recommend reading for caregivers that has books for small people, books for big people. And it's something that we're referencing in the zine that we'll put out today too. Eva, you mentioned young people bearing the brunt of this violence. And, you know, we talk about that a little bit in the conversation, you know, the way that young people that are questioning systems of power and the binaries that maintain them are really facing constant attack. And there are so many ways uh, that we need to be committed to protecting and listening to and building in coalition with young people, especially young trans people. And I think spaces like Queenie's Crew are an important part of that process. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things you hear all the time is like, what can I do? And this is just such a crystal clear example of what can be done is center young people. So whether that's, you know, if you are interested in abolition or more just futures, can you articulate your understanding of that in a way that that is catered to young people. Can you see this model of Queenie's crew? You know, we talked about this notion of sunsetting. The practices, programs, and models that they built does not have to stop because this container of folks have to do other work, right? Like the book is still going to be there. There are going to be young people as long as there are people. Uh, <laughs> and so this is something that folks can continue on and have their own version of practice with. So this is a very accessible experiment for those who are trying to get in the game. So yeah. Read for yourself and read to some kids. I love that as a takeaway. That is a way to get active. And so as we've been covering this landscape at the intersection of youth justice and abolition, uh, is there any other calls to action we want to put out there? Anything else we want to name? Oh, man, you really set me up because you know I want to mention this bumper sticker. It's defund Paw Patrol. So I think no one oh, yeah. on this call has seen <laughs> Paw Patrol, but we know it needs to be um, defunded. So uh, a call to action is share your stories. And if those stories can possibly be made into an animated child's television show, that's not a police procedural. We thank you now in advance. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, the Paw Patrol struggle is real. <laughs> Get that shit out of here, man. <laughs> <laughs> Eva, is there anything else about See You Soon and Queenie's Crew that we want to make sure we talk about? I think it's important to mention, too, that Miriam Kaba and Bianca Diaz dedicated this book to Keely Shenoir, a comrade in PIC abolition and caregiving in love and struggle. And I would encourage folks to learn more by going to the Keely Shenoir Memorial Essay Prize. We'll link that in the show notes today. If you enjoyed See You Soon, if you're getting a lot from Queenie's crew, that's a great place to show your love. And I think too, you know, this is a book based on experience. This is a book based on, you know, loving relationship with people. And so not only can you share See You Soon with your circles and friends, but we can share our own stories. We can encourage our children to share their stories by creating safe spaces, safe crews, and we can share each other's stories. I think it's so important 
And I'm so grateful for, for Miriam and Bianca for bringing this story into our lives and just look at what can happen all over the country, all over the world um, by sharing your stories. We honor Keely's spirit and legacy, and we are sending so much love to the entire Shenwar family. All right, I think that just about wraps up this experiment. Eva, where can folks find all of the work of One of Me? All of the work of One of Me can be found at millionexperiments.com and on Instagram at millionexperiments, too. You can also check out Interrupting Criminalization at interruptingcriminalization.com. Make sure you subscribe to One Million Experiments wherever you get your podcasts. You can also check out Ergo's other work at ergoradio.com or A-I-R-G-O, wherever you get the rest of your podcasts. Um, And yeah, with that, I think that'll do it. We will see you back in the lab next month. Much love to the people. Peace. Peace.